Adrift from the sermon series God on Film, spoken by Pastor Kevin Butcher. Wow, you guys uh, are not in for a treat. You're in for a deep heart stirring today. Um, Pastor Kevin Butcher, I met him about two years ago. We're part of this cohort group for our denomination of pastors who pastor multi-ethnic churches. And when I first met Kevin, he was a very bright fellow. I mean, he just had a lot of great things to say, great ideas. And uh, I, I loved his mind, but what I loved more about him as I got to know him over the years is really his heart for God and his heart for wanting to experience God's love and wanting other people to experience God's love. And today you're going to get a, a little taste of that because I think a lot of us, in many ways, our experience of God's love is kind of defunct, really. And he's really going to help us to see how we can kind of engage with God in that way. Um, I have a lot of admiration for this guy, and you know he's going to be our retreat speaker. We're going to start tonight and uh, go all the way to Friday. And I remember I was in uh, Kevin's office, Pastor Kevin Swanson, not this Kevin. And I said, man, we need to find a retreat speaker. Who can we get? And he said, Peter, I've been reading this real great book called Choose Plus Choose Again by Kevin Butcher. He's a part of our denomination. You think maybe we can get this guy to be our retreat speaker? And I was like, I'm friends with a guy. I could totally try to get this guy to come. And so I, I called him. I said, would you come and be a part of our retreat for the whole week? And he prayed through it, and uh, he made a commitment to come. And we're so excited. And I realized that this is not just going to be a week of us going and just listening to some nice sermons, but it's going to be a week where God invites us to experience healing in his love. And so you'll get a little bit of why that's going to be the case even today. But uh, Kevin uh, Butcher has been married to his wife, Carla, for the past 40 years. Long time. And I don't know, maybe it's just the Kevins in our church, but... Uh, <laughs> This guy cannot get enough of his wife. I mean, it's just, they're just so passionate about each other, even though they've been together for four decades. Like our Kevin Swanson, can't get enough of Linda. And we were just talking about this on the way, uh, on the way here from church this morning. And he just said that it's, it's, it's horrible when marriages, marriages, when people are just married and all they think marriage is, is commitment. That's just sad. Because passion has to be the foundation, the fuel that drives our commitment to one another. And that's really key for any of you here that are married today. Are you cultivating passion in your relationship? You should pray for that every day because we're not always passionate people. So you should pray that God gives you passion for your spouse every single day. Uh, married for 40 years, three beautiful daughters. Uh, he'll share a little bit about them. Uh, he pastored a church. Well, let me just share a little bit about this. This is how I got to meet him, and I was so impressed by him. He was pastoring a white mega church in Detroit, a very large church. And he went to, I think it was a Promise Keepers conference, and God opened up what the real gospel was about. It wasn't just being reconciled to God, but being reconciled to his brothers and sisters. And he realized that there was a racial component to that. And when God got a hold of him of that and he started preaching about that on Sundays at his mega church, and he took that church from 100 people to thousands, that the church didn't like what he was preaching, and eventually they fired him. It was a major storm that went on in his life. And through all of that, God led him and his wife to plant a church in 2002 called Hope Community Church, where it is a diverse, multi-ethnic congregation. It's about 45% black, 45% white, and 10% Asian. It's a beautiful community there. He's left there since uh, recently, and now uh, he is part, he started his own kind of uh, an organization where he is being a pastor to pastors around the country. He travels all over the country. He's a very busy guy, and he's just helping pastors to experience deeper God's love, not helping them to grow their churches, but helping them to really, really experience God's love for their lives. He is an author of a phenomenal book that I want to encourage you to uh, make sure you get before you leave. I don't know how many are left. A lot of people in first service brought it, but I want to encourage you guys to get it. It's $13. You can pay through credit card as well if you want to, but make sure you pick this up before you leave. A former All-American football player is a big dude, all right? And so as he comes forward, can we give Pastor Kevin Butcher a warm, warm Metro welcome. Good job without me, man. Love you, man. Love you, man. Well, first of all, let me say I love Metro Community Church. I, um, yeah. If I could get 
my, two, my three daughters, my two sons-in-law, my four grandchildren to move here. I might move here too, just so I can be a part of this community. This is truly um, the kingdom of God. And uh, I felt so much love in almost every conversation. We're just human beings, but you, you know, you can, you can feel it. You can feel it. You can't, uh, you can't BS love. Um, it, it, it's either really there or we know that you're just trying to make it there. And I feel it here in this community. So thank you for being who you are and for welcoming me. And I got to say, you know, Peter, that was a um, somewhat true, I guess, introduction. Some of it was maybe a little over the top, but, um, but thank you. And you know how much our hearts have just grown and they're going to continue to grow. Um, I got to say, just honestly, that um, when the church blew up uh, back in 2001, um, you know, I had my own piece of that. You know, once the racial piece, I mean, there was a lot of anger in the house, and some of it was mine, for what it's worth. And so, uh, you know, I had my own stuff I had to work on. Uh, you know, you know, um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I'll just leave it at that. But that, that's a great segue into, before I teach this message this morning, just saying to you, please don't think of me as a talking head today. Um, it's very easy to say, you know, when you've got a stage and you've got, you know, lights and you know that somehow there's, look, I'm just a guy. And uh, I've got the same hopes and fears and dreams and brokenness and wounds and uh, um, desires and passions that you do. And so what I'm sharing with you today, I don't have to share any of this. This is coming from the deepest places in my spirit. And I pray that you feel that. I pray that it's more like a, a big living room around a coffee table than it is you know, an auditorium with a stage. That's my prayer for this morning. So um, my assignment is to talk about the movie Adrift. You just saw a clip. And this movie was set in 1983. Uh, a young man named Richard, a young woman named Tammy, they meet in Tahiti, and uh, they fall in love, and they embark upon a 4,000-mile journey in a 44-foot yacht that was supposed to take them from Tahiti to San Diego. But, uh, and this is based on a true story, of course. Uh, so what happened is, in 1983, some of you may remember this, Category 4 Hurricane Raymond happened and hit this boat out in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, Richard was lost, and Tammy had to navigate the rest of the journey alone. And she ended up um, finding her way to off the coast of Hawaii after like 40 or 45 days. And a boat uh, eventually picked her up quite miraculously. So as I was contemplating what to share about this movie and how it might connect with the scripture and the person of Christ and us as human beings, I thought it would be really easy to talk about the discipline and the perseverance and the hard work that Tammy displays overcoming the impact of this category four storm. And in fact, I hear a lot about those terms in Christianity today. Um, the storms of life hit us, and what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to have a lot of discipline. In fact, do the spiritual disciplines for sure. Persevere, work hard, pray more, get in the word, fast. And if you fasted last time during a storm for 20 days, maybe you need to fast for 40 days this time. And if last time, you know, you fasted from something, maybe this time it's time for a juice fast, because you know, <laughs> you know, this is the way we overcome storms. We do a little more, pray a little more become a little more. But the truth that I have found in my life, and I think as I've labored over these uh, passages and over the life of Jesus, especially over the last 40 years, is that though these virtues are important, nobody's going to say that discipline isn't important. I mean, everybody has to set their alarm club, get up in the morning, get to work. You don't just get to take random days off or you'll get fired. I mean, I understand discipline. I played college football and, and you know, I understand what it's like to get up at five in the morning and go run those sprints and then find yourself going, you know, I, and then come back out the next day and not just get in a car and go home. I understand discipline. I understand perseverance. I understand hard work. But it's going to take, my brothers and sisters, a lot more than those three traits, even if we Christianize them, to make it through many of the storms that life brings to us. Even in this movie, you'll see it if you watch it. I'd give it, by the way, a three 
It makes it look like a five-star film. Eh, three, three and a half, maybe. <laughs> That's me. That's me. That's just me. Um, it comes out in the middle of the big storm that Richard and Tammy are facing another kind of storm. They both have very troubled childhoods. Richard's mom committed suicide, I think, when he was around seven. Still dealing with that. Tammy had, uh, came from a home that was separated and split and divorced. And the dad was an angry uh, little boy in a man's body, if you will, uh, who wasn't around. And when he did come around, he just would rage and try to get his way and uh, temper tantrum. And it was very interesting. They discipline, hard work, and perseverance didn't help them face those storms. In fact, the, way, the reason they met in Tahiti, I mean, who meets in Tahiti, for heaven's sakes, is that they were running from the truth of the storms in their lives. And then I started to think, as I was watching the movie, about just my own journey last year. I mean, my wife that, that uh, Peter already talked about, you'll meet her outside. She's just, I mean, <laughs> she is my heart. After, after 42 years of, of knowing this sister, I mean, I just, I mean, I just, I just love her. And last year, she contracted a rare form of cancer. In fact, less than 99 cases in the world documented. We went to U, the University of Michigan Medical Center, where they treat people from all over the country, literally all over the world. They had never seen this kind of cancer. And she's a survivor, and, 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 and God has been very, very good to us, and we're, we're very grateful. But can I tell you something? In the middle of facing that storm, I needed more than a few more Bible verses. I needed something more tangible than a spiritual discipline if I was going to survive that storm. So I think you catch where I'm going with this. So the question this morning I think that we need to face head on is, does Christianity offer anything more than a grit your teeth, try harder, pray a little more religion in the face of life's storms? And quite frankly, this may shock you, but in terms of asking if Christianity offers more than that, here's my response today, sadly. I don't think Christianity does. But Jesus of Nazareth does. And I'd like to share with you in just a moment what he says to us about where he is in the midst of the storm and how we can connect with him and what, what it really is about. But I'd like to contextualize his words uh, in John 13 through 17, where Jesus describes the real storms of spiritual war that we all can expect if we follow him. And I think you'll see this on your screen here soon, I believe. There we go. There we go. Got some great folks back there, by the way. They're servants. They come in early. They stay late. They're really, they're really. And he's back there going, yeah, 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 right. So, and it's the truth. And by the way, don't think, well, you know, this is for people that lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus says very clearly in John 17 of this uh, section of teaching, which is right before he went to the cross, which is called the Upper Room Discourse. He says, Father, I pray not only for the leaven that you have given me. Judas was gone by that time. He says, I pray for all those who will come to faith in me through them. That would be us. So these words are for us. Whatever you think about the rest of the scripture and who they apply to, these words Jesus spoke to us. So this is what he says we can expect. If we're going to be a serious follower of Christ, this is what we can expect in the world. We're just going to run down through these really quickly, and the, the folks back will just list them on for, off for us. We can expect anxiety. Remember, Jesus says in this section, let not your heart be troubled, because it's going to be troubled. You're going to have to fight the trouble. You're going to feel anxious. You're going to feel alone. Hatred and persecution. He says, if they hated me, John 15, they're going to hate you. If you're following the real me, many will find me and then love you, but some will say, don't want him, so they're not going to want you. You're going to feel the threat of death. John 16, he says, there are going to be folk who will drag you out of the synagogues and kill you, and they're going to think they're doing me a service by killing you. That's how, that's how, that's how this war is going to go. And by the way, we think... Well, you know, that's really for back then. It really doesn't happen today. Are you kidding me? In the 20th century, there were more martyrs for the sake of Christ than in all the previous 19th centuries before. But of course, we live in America where we can, I mean, we have freedom of religion, and so we can, we can hide. But I'm telling you, there are folk today who realize that if they testify for the name of Christ, their life is on the line. Jesus predicted that 2,000 years ago. He says you're going to experience suffering. 
John 16, 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. The word means to suffer. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, but it doesn't take away the suffering. And then, of course, he talks even in John 17 about the fact that all of these storms, if you will, come from someone. I'm going to call this person evil personified. He calls him the evil one. He says, I don't pray that you'll take my followers out of the world, Father, but that you will protect them from the evil one, this entity, this personality. He's called by many names in Scripture that is behind all of this pain. And then if that isn't enough, if you read the rest of the Gospels, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even talks about the fact in Matthew 5 that the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. So even if you're not a follower of Christ, you're just alive on the planet. And you think, I'm doing a pretty good job. Why have all these storms hitting me? It's because the rain falls on the just and the unjust in a broken world. I'm often astounded that in modern American Christianity, we um, are surprised when storms hit us. It's almost like we have this equation view of life, don't we? I do the right things. I go to the right schools. I don't get involved in the big sins. You, you know what I'm saying. One plus one plus one equals bad stuff shouldn't happen. Not the really bad stuff. And if it does, we should come out of it pretty quickly. But instead, what Jesus says, you're already in for a wild ride just breathing on the planet. And if you follow me, my Lord, there's going to be some storms. Because this is... This isn't Disney World. This is a spiritual battle for the very lives of human beings. I know announcement time can be somewhat cumbersome, and we, we feel as announcement givers like, I hope they're listening. I hope, I hope this doesn't feel boring. Right, Peter? I feel that every time I ever gave an announcement, I thought, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I do. But today they talked about this summer reaching out to 200 kids. Are you kidding me? Every one of them loved by God, at risk. I don't care if they live in a middle-class community, an upper-class community, or an economically challenged community. I don't care what ethnicity they come from. The enemy hates those children. And you are saying as a church community, we're going to wrap our arms around them. You think the evil one, evil personified, is just going to sit back and say, have at it. We can expect some war, my brothers and sisters. And what you'll notice if you dig into this text, I wish we could have more time to do it, this morning, you can do this on your own. Jesus in John 13 through 17 never promises that these storms will stop before we go home. And though he does promise that one day we'll be with him in eternity. Remember, he opens this talk by saying, um, uh, um, I go to prepare a place for you and I'll come back and I'll take you to be where I am. He promises eternity. But between now and then, he uh, never promises that the storms will end well here. You don't always make it to Hawaii when the storm hits your life, just because you know Jesus. And he never gives formulas. Well then, you might be saying to me, what in the heck does he say? If this is all the stuff he doesn't do, what does he say? This is what he says, right in the middle of John 13 through 17, in the predictions of what's to come, he says this, and one commentator says, this may be the strongest call to action in all of John. It comes from John 15, nine. And this is where he speaks. Next slide, guys. Real truth about our life with him in the storms. This is what he says. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. In the midst of the anxiety, in the midst of the hatred and the persecution, threat of death, suffering, battling, evil personified, first, I want you to hang on to this. I love you, son, daughter. I love you with all of my heart. And I'm asking you to make a choice to abide in my love for you. And if you will do that, we'll make it through the storm. One way or another, we'll make it through the storm. You don't have to be afraid of the storm. You don't have to run from the storm. You don't have to take your life and, and build uh, walls around it to keep yourself from the pain that you're afraid might come if you don't get every jot and tittle put together in your journey. There might be a storm. So many of us, let's be honest, we live trying to keep the storms from happening. Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid if you know that I love you and if you make a choice to abide in my love. Unpacking that word abide just for a minute. It's the Greek word meno. 
Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, if you've been to seminar, you know it is Kittle. Uh, Menno says, uh, Menno means to stay in a place, to remain in a sphere. You might say more colloquially, to make your home in, to remain intimately connected to, in this case, the love of Jesus in the midst of the storm. Jude, who was uh, Jesus' half-brother, writes in his little letter where you don't hear many sermons on Jude because, I mean, it's so intense and so raw about the storms that followers of Jesus faced then and now. At the end of his little letter, one pager, he says, this is how you ride out the storm. This is how you engage um, the powers of darkness in the storm. This is how you don't just uh, show fear, but you live freely in the storm. Keep yourselves, he says, in the love of God. Same thing that Jesus is saying in John 15, 9. So just to make it clear, let me state it one more time. Our anchor, our stability, our assurance in the storms of life is not Jesus saying, well, this won't last very long. Or because you follow me, it won't be very intense. Are you kidding me? If we are literally battling the powers of darkness for the lives of human beings, and by the way, that's what this church is doing. I don't know what, I mean, I, I know Peter knows that. The staff that I've met, I think they know that. I haven't met all of you, but do we know this is what we're doing? Yeah. I mean, we've got programs. They're good. We've, I mean, your children's deal is amazing, for heaven's sakes. Makes me want to be 25 again so I can have more kids. Put them in this program. <laughs> but the bottom line is, really, behind all of this nice stuff, we're fighting for those kids. We're fighting for human beings. How can Jesus say, you know, it won't be that intense. The storms are going to come won't be that intense when we're literally fighting the powers of darkness for the lives of these human beings. He says, your anchor, which, by the way, will produce, he talks about this, will produce joy, will produce peace. It will produce fruit. All those words are all over John 13 through 17. Your anchor is my love that you will know that I, the second person of the Trinity, I, the great I am. The one that John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That one, our anchor in the storm is that that one loves me. And he is with me. And he'll never leave me nor forsake me. And if I will choose to abide in his love, we will not only make it through this storm, we will overcome all the way home. This is very mystical. Of course it's mystical. We, sometimes in American Christianity, in Eastern Christianity, they love mystic. They know God is spirit. In American Christianity, we want something that we can like get here. <laughs> if we can just figure it out, if we can just figure out an equation, if we just understand it, this is, this is really bigger than our understanding. That somehow there's a God whose love is so powerful that we can experience it and that he will come close to us and take us through the storm. It's mysterious, but it's powerful and it's true. Think for just a minute. I mean, I was a kid, maybe five, six years old, and my dad and mom dropped us kids, had a brother and a sister off with somebody in northern Indiana. Now, can I just say this to your parents, just a little parenting information. When you drop your kids off, get down on their level. Tell them who you're leaving them with. Tell them how long you're going to be gone. Tell them when you're coming back. Tell them where you're going to the extent they can understand. Because I'm telling you, all I can remember about being with these people are pretty nice, but how do we get here? And what are we doing? And maybe they tried. Maybe I just couldn't hear it. But all I know is I was like, where are mommy and where are daddy and why are we here? I got this stomach virus. It was very intense. And uh, I remember they tried to help me, these two nice people that we stayed with. And they even took me to the hospital because it was really, really intense. And I remember all that I said, all I could say was over and over again is, I want my daddy, I want my daddy, I want my daddy, I want my daddy, I want my daddy. Now listen, I knew, even at the age of five or six, my dad wasn't a doctor. My dad wasn't a scientist. My dad didn't necessarily have the ability to come in, give me a shot, say some kind of words that would make me feel better. Here's what I sensed. And this is what I think Jesus is trying to say. If my father would be there with me, my father who loved me, 
all shall be well. His love is there. His love is wrapping me up. I'm in his love. So stomach virus or not, it wasn't about the storm going away. It was about me being with my loving father in the storm. This is some real stuff. I'm thinking of the great Joan of Arc. I don't know what you think about her voices and her experiences, but read, they, they literally have transcripts of her entire trial. There's not much mythology about Joan because you can read literally about what she actually said and was recorded, what she said happened about, you know, the wars that she was in with, with, between France and England and what happened at the end. Of course, she was burned at the stake. But at the very end of her life, when she would not recant, she would not recant because this was about her Christ speaking to her heart. When she was being burned at the stake, she said, please, someone go get a crucifix because I want my crucified, loving Jesus right there in front of me while I go to heaven from this earth. What is that? We, we tend to think, wow, that Joan of Arc man, she was a stud. Maybe she got, as the Father has loved me, so love I you, abide in my love. Read this other story about this young lady. Uh, she was living during the time of the Boxer Rebellion, about 10 years old, and some folks saw this and brought this story back to the States. They actually saw this happen. Communist soldiers came and said to this 10-year-old little girl uh, living in China, she said, they said, if you do not deny your Christ, we're going to blow you away. To which she responded by lifting her hands and singing, Jesus loves me. This I know. And by the she wasn't quoting a Bible verse. She knew the love of Christ. She was abiding as a 10-year-old in the love of Christ. And the communist soldiers indeed blew her away, but sent her straight to the arms of her loving Christ. This is real. This isn't about some special category of believer that kind of, you know, they're just stronger. They have more discipline. They have more perseverance. This is available to every follower of Christ. In fact, think of Jesus himself who said in John 16, all of you are going to leave me. He said to the remaining 11, and they all did but John. But he said, I won't be alone because my father who loves me will be with me. How about this? If it's good enough for Jesus... Maybe it's good enough for us. So, as we kind of transition here and I begin to, you know, when you're in an airplane and you, you fly in, you know, the pilot begins, you can just feel the plane go, Ng. so the plane just went, Ng. we're going to start to, we're going to start to take this plane down, okay? It's going to take a minute. Um, air traffic control is keeping us up just a little bit here, but we're, we're, we're turning a corner here. I thought, why not talk a little bit more about what it means to abide then? Let's unpack that a little bit more, uh, abiding in the love of Christ. But my sense is, my brothers and sisters, that a larger question looms here this morning. How can we abide in a love that so many of us know so little about? How can we abide in a love in the midst of the storm that so many of us know about cognitively, but we have really never experienced? So, for example, if I asked you this morning, do you know that he loves you? I mean, if we could pause time and I could go around to each of them, we could just sit in the chairs and turn these chairs. Instead of looking at the back of each other's heads, we could just sit there and look right at each other. And I could just say, tell me the truth, you're safe. Have you ever experienced the love of God in Christ? Um, what would you say? Some of us would say, well, the Bible says, but you notice, don't you? I didn't ask you what the Bible said. I asked you, what have you experienced? This isn't the end. This is only intended to tell us about the one who is the end. So if I asked my 35-year-old daughter today, my oldest, my firstborn, if I said to her, do you know that your daddy loves you? And she said, I do know that you love me, dad, because when I was seven years old, you sent me a birthday card. You were away on a trip, and it said at the bottom, 
Happy birthday, Andrea. I love you, Dad. If she said, I said, wait a minute, no, not the way I hug you, not the way I kiss you, not the way I was with you during those tough junior high years when you were trying to find out who you were. By the way, we should skip junior high. I think junior high. <laughs> junior high, I don't know why they still do junior high. I'm just saying. All in favor, say aye. Come on now. I said, nothing about daddy-daughter dances? Nothing about those late-night talks when everybody was in bed and it's just you and me? And I'm just there and you can tell me anything? If it was only because you had something written... As, as important as the writing of it is, if that's all she had, I would know it's not enough. Why is it, my brothers and sisters, that we expect experiential love in every other relationship of love in our lives, but we think with God, well, all we have to do is know some verses. I'm going to tell you this. For me and for the millions who have followed Christ since his coming, just knowing the Bible verses about the love of Christ is not enough to take us through the storm. And it's not the kind of love that Jesus was talking about in John 15 when he said, if you know that I love you and abide in my love, we'll make it all the way home. So my story, briefly, I trusted Christ when I was five. I was the religious kid. I was a performer, but grew up in a very, even though it was a Christian, it was a very dysfunctional home. How many of us know that you can be a believer in Christ and be extremely dysfunctional. Just raise your little hand if you know this a little bit. Okay. There's a big old hand. Tim with two M's. Raise his hand real big back there in the back. I knew about the love. I could, man, I was, you know, when you used to have these Bible drills, you know, where you find the verse the fastest. I want all those things. But inside, I was like a vacuum. You know what Paul says in Ephesians 3? By the way, this isn't just in John 15 or Jude 21. It's everywhere. Paul says in that prayer he prays at the pinnacle of the theology in Ephesians 3, I pray that you, my brothers and sisters, would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. That love that is high and wide and deep and long. Because to know that love is to be filled with all the fullness of God. The opposite of fullness is... Empty, and they don't have to know Greek to know that. And that emptiness longs to be filled with anything and everything else. I tried to fill my stuff up with success. And I had it, man. All-American football player, won awards in seminary, won the Church History Award in 1983 for my thesis, my master's thesis. Was a successful pastor, but there were signs of the emptiness over the years. I used to sit with my kids in this big, lazy boy chair that had all kinds of... Uh, uh, jelly beans and, and, and pretzels, and we had to throw that chair away. Not because it broke, but because of all that nasty stuff down inside there. Man, it was unsanitary, but anyway. <laughs> I used to sit there with my girls. They'd be hanging all over me. One usually up here somewhere, and then a couple on either arm. And I'd listen to Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, say these words. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way deep down inside you, not the things that hide you, not your diplomas, your awards, your accolades. They're just beside you. It's you I like. Every part of you. And I sat there as a grown man and wept. And my little girls, you know how children are when they see somebody weeping that they don't usually see weeping. They're going, you know, Leanne would say to Andrea, Daddy's crying. And they, they'd literally touch my, they'd reach up and touch my tears to see if they were real. And they would say, Daddy, why are you crying? And honestly, my brothers and sisters, I had a master's degree. I had no idea why I was crying. Today I know. Because I wanted somebody to say that to me. I wanted God to say that to me. Not just some God who says in some powerful voice from like somewhere out in the Milky Way galaxy, I love you because I am love. I want him to come down close, look at me, see me, the real me with all of the stuff, the baggage, and say, you know what? 
Nevertheless, you're good stuff. I, I don't just love you. I like you, son. That emptiness manifested also in my marriage. I'm not going to get into details, but let's just say I'm ashamed of some of the ways I behaved in my marriage. And it was all about trying to fill up the emptiness. Maybe one thing to take from this this morning for marriage is stop pointing at the other person. Start checking out inside your own heart. What are you trying to fill up through the conflict in your marriage, in your own journey? Maybe if we can learn to experience a love here, we can ride out the storm in the marriage here. Ultimately, it came to a head in 1990. I was 36 years old. And after another performance, another speaking engagement, I got back and everybody's going, which, by the way, it never fills you up. I had a professor in seminary that said, "Treat, treat accolade like perfume. Smell it, but don't swallow it because it can't fill you. And I almost tried to take my own life at... um, 94 in Allard on the east side of Detroit with an Anats eyelash. I wanted to, I saw this embankment and I went like this and then I went like this. And I thought, what is going on with me? And I went home and threw myself on the ground and I said, God, I have everything, but I have nothing. And in the next several days, in detail that I don't have time to get into, it was shown to me. I'll tell you what you don't know, son. You don't know. You know about my love, but you don't know that I love you. You're like, to quote my brother, Brendan Manning, you're like a travel agent handing out brochures to places you've never been. Hey, go to Tahiti. You ever been there? No, but look at the pictures. God loves you. Do you know he loves you? No, but I told you the Bible says he loves you. That was me. Until I began to realize that he really did, and there was some healing that would allow me to experience it. So for the rest of our time this morning, can I just talk for a minute openly about our own journey Would you allow me to share just a few signs of possibly some emptiness inside of us that might indicate that maybe what we think we've been looking for is really not what we've been looking for. We've been looking to experience the love of Christ that we're asked to abide in so that we can overcome in the storms of life. So try this one on for size. Here's the first one. The signs of our real longing. Some of us today don't know who we are and secretly might even hate who we are. Do you ever walk into a room and find yourself kind of morphing in your personality into whatever's going on around you because you can't just be yourself. You have to become what might be acceptable to others. Could that be because you've never known the love of Christ that would secure you in being you? Some of us even struggle with self-hatred today. I know that. I didn't get this out of a book. I got this out of my own life. I had every accolade and hated myself in 1990. It's kind of hard to own that, though, isn't it? I mean, you come into the parking lot this morning, and you come in, you go, hey, bro, how you doing? The guy says, I'm doing pretty good. Hate myself, but otherwise I'm fine. (laughs) And yet, because I'm you, and by the way, this is... I, I, I do get the, the honor to share with a lot of different kinds of people all over the world and all over the United States. And can I tell you, everywhere I go, it's all of us, my brothers and sisters. This is the main tactic of the enemy. If he steals the love of God from your heart. <laughs> I'm starting to think I can make this happen. I don't know. He, he's got us because we can't make it through the storm. We'll find ourselves even not engaging because we're so, but if we're secured in the, if he, he knows, if we're secured in the love of, of Christ, we'll tackle anything if Christ calls us to it. He is most afraid of you and I experiencing the love of Christ that will set us free. How about this one? You find yourself being tormented by voices from your childhood so that you can't hear the Father saying, You are my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. So a few years ago, I, I, I got in touch with this book that was about these social workers that formed a group called Heart to Heart. And it gave a chance for marginalized children who didn't know love to connect with them, and they would write them back. So one of these children says, Dear Heart to Heart, I'm so sad. My dad's an alcoholic. 
I love him so much. I get mad when he breaks promises, and maybe if I would be really good, he would stop drinking. Please help me. Can you imagine that child growing up and trying to connect with God, saying, maybe if I'd be really good, you would love me. How about this one? Dear heart to heart, my name is Darren. I'm in middle school. It's the worst year of my life. I hate school. My parents think I don't try, but I do. I started drinking. It's the only time I feel okay. Dear heart to heart, why did God make a dumb person? P.S. I am the dumb person. Some of us this morning, no matter how many degrees you might have, or how often you've been told that you're highly gifted in your brain, you walk around thinking, I'm just not enough. How can we possibly ride out the storms of life when the lie that's living inside our brain from the father of lies is keeping us from the safe and secure love of Christ? Dear heart to heart, things are going awful. I have to go to the therapist, but it never helps. I would like to just have one friend of my own. My parents like my sister best. Dear heart to heart, why did God make me like this? Do you know those voices can be healed? Many of our moms and dads, you can only give away what you've received. Many of our moms and dads didn't know that love, so they couldn't get, it's not about blaming them, but it's about calling out what we might not have gotten that lives within us today that's keeping us from the abiding love of Christ, which is key to us living through the storms. How about this one? Constantly looking for approval. We all need to be encouraged. I'm talking about rolling up your emotional sleeves saying, hit me, or I can't feel good about myself. If you don't tell me I'm beautiful, if you don't tell me I'm strong, if you don't tell me I'm smart, if you don't tell me I'm accomplished, I can't make it. Sign of the emptiness. By the way, you know where I got all of these? What in the book? All of these were me. All of these were me. How about being critical of others? And you say, well, I have good reason to be critical. People disobey the word of God. So when I criticize, I have Bible verses to back me up. Come on. I'm talking about that criticism where you just know you can't even look at someone without going, who do they think they are? What is that? Are you kidding me? What it, why did she, why did they? That isn't about them. That's about that internal critic that lives inside of us with those negative thoughts about, well, lies like this. I'm ugly. I can't do anything right. I'm permanently defective. God is angry at me. I'm not capable of succeeding. Everyone else is a normal sinner. I'm all alone in how badly I sin. I'm at the core, defective. If I am my true self, people will not want to be with me and be my friend. I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself. I have no future. I'm on the outside looking in. I don't really fit with anyone anymore. When we're filled with that kind of internal criticism, my brothers and sisters, in the spot where the love of Christ, who is saying, you know, really, you've got issues, but I like you. I made you. You're mine. When those voices are inside, all we have for others is that same criticism. How about this one? Find yourself having difficulty in relationships. Could it be that it's not about the other person? It's about you trying to make them fill up an emptiness here that only the love of Christ can fill? It took me 10 years of marriage to figure out that Carla wasn't God. I was trying to make her God. One time she said to me, what do you want from me? And honestly, my brothers and sisters, I didn't know. But today I know I was trying to get her to fill up where only Christ can fill with his love. How about this one? Never at peace, constantly driven and we go, well, it's good to be, I mean, we applaud this one. In middle-class culture especially, you worked really hard. You worked 70 hours a week, man, you were the man. And you've got six doctorates, wow. Okay, maybe if that's the call in your life. But what if our drivenness is about trying to get, keep the voices that are inside of us at bay because activity keeps us from listening to our hearts? And so you, my brothers and sisters, you and I can literally miss our lives by getting involved in everything and anything over and over and over, trying to keep the voices at bay, which are from hell, 
because we can't hear the voice of Christ saying, I love you. Be free. What if you began to believe today that those voices could literally be healed by the healer Christ? So you could hear him saying, you're my son, you're my daughter, beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. And of course, any addictive tendencies. By the way, addictive tendencies, I mean, in the neighborhood where I pastored for 16 years, it was about crack and heroin and alcohol. People just saturated with alcohol. I mean, they never stopped drinking because they're so empty. They're just trying to, addiction is about trying to fill up that emptiness because they don't know the love of Christ. Never met an active addict that knew the love of Christ. They knew it here. Many addicts on the street, many addicts like, I know about Christ. Many said, I believe in Christ. But when they're actively addictive, they don't experience the love of Christ. And so they're looking to fill up that hole. But sometimes we can try to fill up that hole with things that people would say, well, that's pretty normal. Like, for example, with our children. I saw a YouTube video the other day, some little league game, and the, the kids were over here crying while the parents were like knocking the crap out of each other on the ground. And you can just hear some of those dads and those moms going, this is for my child. That ain't for your son, bro. That's about your own empty heart. You're using your kid as some kind of crack cocaine to fill up your emptiness. So sometimes, look, a good thing can become a bad thing if we try to make it the main thing. There's only one main thing. It's as the Father has loved me, so love I you. Um, abide in my love. So if you all just would pray for me this one second. Okay. God just answered your prayer. I made it down, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Before we wind this up, what would it be like this morning to take two small steps? If any of what we just said makes sense, you know, here's the storms. Here's the abiding love of Christ. I don't know that love. I don't know that love. These are the signs. I'm empty. It's not an all or nothing thing. It might be 10%, 20%. I want to be full of the love of Christ. I want the love of Christ that fills me up so that I can hear his call. And no matter what, no matter what powers of darkness are standing right there, I'm walking right into it because I'm secure in the love of Christ. What if we took two small steps today? Here's the first one. I think we've got something for the screen here. What if we began to turn toward our God today, the same one that Jesus met in the garden and called him Abba? What if you and I began to meet him there uh, at his chest, if you will, and pour out our heart to him as our Abba, believing that he will come close to us and help us to begin to experience his love? In fact, Romans 15, 8, do you, or Romans uh, 8.15. But God has not given us a spirit again of fear unto bondage, but he's given us the Holy Spirit of adoption that causes our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. That Aramaic term that a little child would use when he first said something to his dad. A one-year-old Aramaic child wouldn't say, Good morning, Father. Geez, the kid just, you know, he would, wouldn't even say Dad. He wouldn't say daddy. He'd probably say dada. What Jesus called the father in the garden in his most, his deepest moment of crisis. He said, Abba, I trust your love. Thus, even if you don't let this cup pass for me, not my will, but yours be done. He wrote out the storm because he abided in the love of his Abba. Now, this is, I'm not trying to judge my brothers and sisters, but again, I'm you and you're me. Many of us this morning don't know him as Abba. We know him as coach, always trying to cut something off our spiritual 40 time. We might be running a 4-4, and he's going, can you just cut a tenth? Can you just get back out there and work out one more time? Do another spiritual workout, one more quiet time. No wonder we don't know his love. He's always just saying, more. Some of us know him as um, a spiritual um, teacher, if you will. 
professor. We just get through studying Romans, and then we go, Father, Abba, I just studied Romans. He goes, that's good, but Prophet Amos is next. Get your Bible out. It's time to move into the Old Testament. It's never enough. It's always about more content, more input. He's not our professor. Some of us treat him like a spiritual cop. I mean, we've, we've got issues. Somebody has to watch out so that we don't get out of a line, and somebody has to put us in spiritual timeout, right? How many, how many of us, when we look at God, when we think about God, we look up and we're like, I, I'm, I'll do better. I didn't mean to. My brothers and sisters, what if we began to take a risk this morning and turn toward him and see him like this? Like this. I just, I just love you. Just stop, stop, stop. Don't try to do more. Don't cut another tenth off your spirit. Don't read the Bible anymore. I have told entire groups of people, put the Bible down. And Peter can get up next week and say, don't listen to that part of his sermon if he wants to. <laughs> but I'm saying, if it's keeping us from him, his stories in the Bible, but God is not the Bible. God is a spirit who calls himself our Abba. My little girls were young, man. You know, they would get so freaked out about whatever. My middle daughter, who's a therapist today. By the way, if you have a kid who's a therapist, you're going to need a therapist. I'll tell you that. Because, you know, they come home and they start looking at you. They do that therapist thing. They go, stop that. You don't know me. Um, my middle daughter, the therapist, she used to be afraid of ants. And she would come running toward her dad. She'd see an ant. She'd come running toward me. She'd jump up my arms and she would just pour her heart out here. She'd just pour it out. She'd just weep and cry and scream. And I'd just hold her, man. And then she'd be done. And she'd literally push away, not even a thank you, and get down and go run off. Where did she leave her deepest pain? On the, on the chest of her Abba. When's the last time you... Poured it out to your Abba. What if he's waiting to help you experience him there? Yes, it's spiritual. Yes, it's mystical. But it is real. When my wife was struggling with the cancer, I'm telling you, he met me there on his chest. He will meet you there. What if you took a risk and began to take a step toward him as Abba? One last step, and it, it's, it's, it comes right out of that one. It's, it comes out of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Well, here's what it is. What about open your hearts, not just here, but here, to the healing love of Christ here? You say, is that in the Bible? Look at 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all things. Peter, by the way, was there in John 13 through 17. He heard Jesus say all of it. Peter's writing to the church in Asia Minor. He's writing to us. And he says, above all things. By the way, you know what the Greek, you know what it means? You know what above all things means in Greek? Above all things. It's very sophisticated. <laughs> There's only a few that can really know these deep truths. <laughs> above all things. When you get together as a community, love one another. Turn toward one another and be present. Take off your mask. If, they're, if somebody's going to love you and you have a mask on, they're only loving a caricature of you. There's some risk. We're going to talk about this more at camp. Take off the mask and say, here's who I am. Take a risk that maybe they will accept you there with all the baggage. It doesn't mean they're saying, I love all the behaviors you're acting out in, but they're accepting you. They're loving you with the love that Christ has put in them. And when you experience that love, you begin to feel his love. And all of a sudden, you begin to know what Jesus was saying when he said, if you'll abide in my love, you'll make it through the storm. By the way, remember when Jesus says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. 
And so I, I don't know what you think about that, but sometimes I thought it meant, yeah, he's out there. When he ascended into heaven, he went way out there like a rocket ship, you know? You know, in, in Acts 1, it's like it says he ascended. Woo! And so there he is. He's way out there. So what does it mean? What if he didn't go way out there? What if he just, what if heaven is this here? Remember after he was resurrected, he was with the disciples? He wasn't. He was with them? He wasn't. He, where was he going? The coffee shop in Jerusalem? He was going, I think, heaven, earth, heaven, earth. So what if when I'm here with my sister and she's sharing her story and I'm sharing my story, what if Peter is implying that Jesus is right here? And what's he doing? Well, he's sending text messages. No. He's doing what he said he came to do, heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. He's giving away his love. He is, you may not have all the answers I need. I pro, I'm sure I don't have all the answers you need. But when he is there, he is catalyzing the love we have so that anything the enemy has perpetrated upon us, the love of Christ here in the body of Christ will crush what the enemy has been doing in our lives. You say, well, how is it going to happen? Through the powerful love of God in Christ. One last thought. Do you know that the neurobiological community tells us that we do relationship in our right brain, what we call our limbic brain. This is where we feel. This is where we know love or we know the absence of love. Do you know that your brain literally and the limbic brain can be hurt through the absence of love? That a child can know in the third trimester of the womb, they can know whether they're loved or not. That's a neurobiological truth. And you know what they say? No matter how damaged the right brain is by the lack of love, this is a neurobiologist that says this. Um, after years of research, do you know how that damage from the lack of love can be healed? By love. Interesting, Peter said it 2,000 years before. Above all things, love one another because that love will heal a multitude of sins. If you want to experience the love of God today, talk to Abba for pour it out. Pour it out. Tell him everything. If, if he's a good father, he'll hear it all. You don't have to couch it. You don't have to speak in King James English. Tell him everything. He's your Abba. And then turn toward a brother or sister and begin to share. And watch how that experience that you didn't have will become your experience so that the next time the storm comes, you'll know where to abide. What I'd love to do this morning is give, I'd love to sit with each of you. You have no idea how much I mean that. Maybe this week at camp we'll get to do some of that. I would love to hear each one of your stories because each of one of you are a son or a daughter and you, you matter so eternally to the Father. And I honor that. I just, I want to hear how it's been for you. I want to hear the wounds and the, the success. And I would like to be that person that sits with you and helps you know the love of the Father just through our interaction but I can't, so I'm going to ask you to look at one more thing I'm going to do this morning, and I'm going to ask you, my brother, I know he just went, huh, me? You, didn't you see me like I kept inching? I, I was trying to do it slow so there's no panic. And you have the right to refuse this, okay? Um, my name's Kevin, by the way. Eric, nice to meet you, Eric. I would like to do, here's what I'd like to do. I'll say this and see if Eric wants to be a part of this or not. In the Jewish community, every Sabbath, um, the father will take his sons and daughters to begin Sabbath. He'll sit at the corner of the table and he'll bring them to himself and he'll bless them. He'll give them a loving blessing. It's a way that God um, kind of built into the Jewish community, a way of experiencing, not just hearing about the love of God. So today what I'd like to do is I'd like to play, Eric, your daddy. For a minute, would you allow that? Okay, thank you. Um, what's your, uh, how old are you? 39, this'll work. Cause I'm 49, but um, <laughs> oh, that hurts me so bad. I'm 64, so I could literally be your dad. Here's what I'd like you to just sense or feel. Two things, number one, what if you had ever received this kind of loving blessing from anyone, let alone your parents, ever in your entire life? How would it have helped heal your heart 
to position you to experience this abiding love of, of the Father. Secondly, secondly, that could be the Lord. You might want to pick it up. <laughs> could, be, could be Satan too, who knows? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, where was I? Where was I? <laughs> you might want to edit that Satan part from the thing. Um, what if you began to believe hope against hope that the blessing that I'm going to give to my new son, Eric, is the blessing that your Abba, the loving, the love that your Abba, please don't miss this, is giving you and me as his sons and daughters every moment of every day of our lives. That the wounds, the voices keep us from experiencing, but this is the love. What I'm trying to depict here is the love that Abba has for each of us for each of us, each of us as sons and daughters. So here we go. I'm so glad to be with you again, Eric, on this Sabbath evening. I love you so, so much. Sometimes during the week, it gets busy. I'm not able to take the time. You're in school. I'm where I am, but we get to do this every Friday night, and I hope when I look into your eyes, son, you can sense that as your dad, I really, really love you. These are not just words. I'm your father, and I love you so much. I remember the day you were born, and the thing that I remember most is that I loved you so much, and you hadn't done anything. You made it down the birth canal, but that was mostly your mother's doing, I think. Um, <laughs> And though you hadn't performed at all, I love you. All that stuff about love being about performance, it's a lie. Amen. I just loved you. And even though you're getting older now, I got to tell you, when you were playing in the band and you squeaked and you thought, I wonder if daddy still loves me. I love you just as much when you squeaked as when you made first chair. And when you're playing baseball and you struck out with the bases loaded, I couldn't love you. I love you so much at that moment. Sad for you, feels bad to strike out, but love, the, the love wasn't in question, son. When you hit the home run that won the game, I didn't love you more. I couldn't love you more, son. I just love you. I just love you, son. And I want you to know that out there, it's kind of scary. There's a lot of love if, love because, I just love you. And no matter what happens in your life, let, if you become the next president of the United States, I will be proud of you, but I won't love you more. If something goes awry and you end up, God forbid, in prison, I'll be there because I'll love you just as much there. What I want you to know in this Sabbath evening is that I just love you Amen. and I'm never letting you go. So may the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you. May the Lord give you, my dear sweet son Eric, of his deep and sweet and everlasting peace. Amen. 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 Every word of that song. Every word. Every word. My father, please, please, we've got some other stuff to do here, Lord, but don't let it take us away from what you just spoke to us this morning. Let us follow those tears. Let us follow the emptiness. Let us get honest. Let us not be the same walking out of here today. You want to secure us in your great love for us. Oh, God, come close to each of us. Give us the courage to turn toward your face, Abba. Give us the courage to take off the mask before we go out of here this morning with some safe brother or sister. Meet us there, Lord, as you met the early church, as you've met 2,000 years of believers. Meet us there with your love, the love that fills us so that we can know where we can abide in the storm.
I don't know if you felt uncomfortable watching that. I did in the first service because my father never loved me like that. And you know, as Asians, we're not very touchy. And I was actually quite uncomfortable watching him do that in the first service. And I think that if we grew up in a home where our father kind of didn't love us unconditionally like that, it's going to be hard for us to believe that there's a father in heaven who loves us like that. And so um, I hope that you would invite God to join you right now in this moment because the love that he has for you is furious. It isn't tamed. And a lot of times we want God to love us in a very tame manner. What I love about what Kevin just did, it was furious. There were, he's just free in what he showed. And I think God wants to show that to you today. So don't leave. You might have something to do, but let God speak to you. The prayer team is going to be in the front and the back. We want this to be an opportunity for God to engage with you. And they'll be here even after service.